morning, everyone. Certainly good to see all of you, especially those of you who are visiting with us. We want you to know how thrilled we are that you have chosen to uh, come our way and spend these moments of worshiping together uh, with us. For those of you who are online, we're glad that you're here with us as, as well. Uh, pray God's blessings upon you as you are maybe shut in at home or maybe you're just visiting from afar. Anyway, good to see all of you here this morning. Let me share just a couple of things that are important for us to know about. Number one is we're going to have our discussion this evening over last week's episode, episode seven, visitations that we're going to be discussing here uh, this evening uh, following our period of singing and praying and gathering for the Lord's Supper, we'll have some discussion time together with one another. The other piece of information you need to know about is that there will be no chosen episode show next Wednesday uh, evening, nor will there be a Sunday discussion. And the reason is because, you know, Thanksgiving is this uh, coming weekend, and so we're going to spend an evening in Thanksgiving and, and devoting... Uh, having a devotional together with one another. And so let me encourage you to be here for that period of time. It'll be a, a wonderful time together as we read scripture and sing songs and give thanks to God for all the many blessings he has shared with us, such an incredible God that we serve. And then Sunday evening, we'll have a singing together with one another. So this little boy, he was getting ready for bedtime and he, he was in the bathroom and, and uh, doing all the things he's supposed to be doing his mother was outside in the living room and she was doing some chores and all of a sudden she hears a little boy screaming, Mom, help, help, Mom, Mom. And she drops everything and rushes into the bathroom to see what's going on. And as she walks in and, and looks around, she says, what's wrong? And he points at the toilet. And she looks in the toilet and his toothbrush is there. And he says, I dropped my toothbrush. And so she reaches in. She goes, well, don't worry about it. He's starting to cry. She goes, don't worry about it. Mommy will buy you a new toothbrush. He rushes out of the room for a moment and goes elsewhere. And pretty soon he comes back from his mother's bathroom. And he's holding her toothbrush in his hand. He says, you need to buy a new one of these too because it fell in the toilet two days ago. <laughs> from the mouth of babes. You know, sometimes you would rather not know the truth than to hear the truth. Yet, you know, there's an old saying that says the truth will set you free. Well, never is that more true than when you talk about returning to our roots and, and the various aspects of what it means to return to our roots. Last week, I shared with you a lesson called Returning to Fellowship, to look at the, the value of fellowship and how it impacts our lives in incredible kinds of ways. You might recall that in the lesson, I share with you basically the definition of what the word fellowship means, it simply means to share together, to have in common with one another, to participate with one another in life and with the life of Jesus Christ. You might also recall that I shared with you that when it comes down to fellowship, there are a number of dimensions of fellowship, and two of the most important dimensions of fellowship is one, that it is a vertical fellowship, then it's a horizontal fellowship. When you talk about a vertical fellowship, you're talking about our fellowship that we enjoy with God himself. When you talk about horizontal fellowship, you're talking about the fellowship that we enjoy among one another. And yet when you take the two different dimensions, they both meld together. They are a continuum. There's something that you can't possibly separate. They are mutually dependent upon one another. In order for me to have fellowship with you on a spiritual level, I must first have a vertical relationship with God. And so you can see how those two blend together and how they're so important when you talk about the value of what fellowship is about. We also learned that when it comes down to fellowship, that fellowship is something that is both inclusive and exclusive. 
Of course, we're encouraged to be those who are very inclusive about how we address one another, that we're willing to bring people into the body of, of believers. You don't have to even announce what kind of congregation you are when it comes down to being either inclusive or exclusive. As soon as a person walks in the door, they'll know. Without you saying a word, they'll know whether you are inclusive by the way that you maybe welcome them with a smile or with a warm handshake or as they enter into the auditorium and there is a, a positive noise or a positive buzz that is going on here as we connect with one another and as we join back together with one another for a period of studying the Bible or worshiping a God, those things become very pronounced. Even when it comes down to, say, you teenagers, you know, you have to ask yourself, are you going to be an exclusive uh, fellowship or are you going to be inclusive? When you come together as a teen group, what kind of young people are you going to be? Are you going to welcome those new people that move into the area or try to join themselves to your teen group? Are you going to include them and make them feel welcomed here? Or if you're talking about young adults, are you going to inclusively bring in those who maybe move into the area or visit your fellowship? Are you going to be inclusive in that way? And you can say that about all the various strategies and all the various groups that come together as our congregation. Are we including people? Are we, are we excluding them from our small group? It's easy to fall into those kinds of traps. May I remind you that God is a very inclusive God. In fact, we know that from a number of passages of Scripture. For God so loved the world, that's all inclusive. He loves the world around him. Or 1 John 2 and verse 2, at the beginning of verse 1, he says, My little children, do not sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the propitiation not only for our sins, but the sins of the world. That's a very inclusive kind of thing. So God wants all men to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So God is an inclusive God. But having said that, it's important to understand that enjoying a fellowship with God is not without boundaries. God is the one that establishes the terms of that fellowship that we have with them, and it's laid out for us in the scriptures. So you can't go beyond those things. God is not one to turn a blind eye to sin. He expects us to live a certain kind of lifestyle according to his morals, according to his standards, according to the way he says we are to live our lives. And so God is one who is inclusive, but he has boundaries to it. And that's why we looked at 1 John, the first chapter last week, and we noticed verse 5 where it says, God is light. And in him there is no darkness. If we walk in darkness and say that we have fellowship with God, well, that's not the truth. So God is the one who establishes the perimeters. He's the one that, for lack of a better word, makes the list. The list of what is acceptable and unacceptable. And we are to live according to that list. Not our list, but according to God's list. If we are to hope to have the kind of fellowship that is one that is sweet. I think one of the things that we have here at Linda Road is an inclusive fellowship. We're trying to build toward that. We're trying to become stronger in that kind of a, a lifestyle. I believe, truly, I, I really do believe that we have a loving, a, a caring. I think we have a joy-filled. I think we have a united fellowship. But because we have that, no, by the way, I'm not saying that we're perfect in any stretch of the imagination. We all have things that we can work on as individuals and as a, a congregation. That's why we keep reminding ourselves to, you know, to make sure our, our visitors feel comfortable, that we park in the dirt and not on the pavement. So we allow our visitors a place to park or we sit in the front and not in the back. So we allow our visitors to be comfortable when they walk in, if they so walk in maybe a little bit late. I'm just saying that we have a beautiful thing going here. 
But at the same time, we have something beautiful going here. It's that which also makes us vulnerable. So what does it make us vulnerable to? It makes us vulnerable to the wiles of the devil. It's easy to get seated in a place of being comfortable, not knowing that Satan is like a roaring lion. He's going about seeking someone to devour. He loves to devour congregations. And so there's that always threat that he's going to be there uh, against us. When we decide as a fellowship of believers that you know, we're going to rise up and build, that we're going to live our lives that exalt Jesus Christ, that equip the saints, that you know, evangelizes those that are lost. When we decide that we're going to build, then you can be sure that Satan and his followers are going to rise up and say, let's stop them. When something good is going on, they're going to try to smash it. They're going to try to undo it. There's a number of reasons for that. So this morning, what I want to do is, I want to, of course, return back to the subject of fellowship. And I want to talk to you about the importance of reinforcing the fellowship. In my former life, before I became a preacher, I worked in construction. I was a non-destructive um, inspector, did quality assurance, and we were building nuclear reactors. Did some down in California and others up in the Atomic Energy Commission, which is now Washington Power Supply System up in the east side of Washington. But this thing that you're seeing behind me is a containment vessel that was built in Diablo Canyon, California. It's right off the Pacific coast, about 14, maybe 15 miles from San Luis Obispo. But I worked on this thing here. It's about 300 feet tall. It's 150 feet in diameter, obviously made of, of steel. And my job was to inspect the wells, radiography and dipenetrate and mag particle and all those kinds of stuff that you could care less about. But that's what I used to do. And I remember as we were building this thing and going up after the containment was built, they began to lay on the surface of the containment vessel a, a, some reinforcement. They put rebar around it, three-inch rebar, about that round. Some of it was about that round. And some of it went horizontal. Some of it went diagonal. But they laid all this rebar there. And then on top of the rebar, they put about three foot of feet of, of cement. So the whole containment vessel was covered with rebar and cement once it was radiographed and after it was tested and things like that. And the purpose of the reinforcement was to protect the containment vessel against any of the threatening elements that were around, whether it was an earthquake or just the weather itself or maybe a threat from an enemy attacking it or to maybe just to protect the public if the core was to decide to melt down within the containment then hopefully the containment would contain it, the radiation from getting out into the, the public. So there was a need to constantly reinforce it from threat. That was the finished product, by the way. There was, there was PG&E 1 and then PG&E 2, Units 1 and 2, and you can see them now in their completed uh, state. By the way, that was like 40-something years ago. And uh, it's since, you know, they thought about mothballing it uh, this year, but they decide not because California's having such a hard time with electrical power and the need of electrical power that they allowed it to stay online for a while longer before they put turbine windmills all over the Pacific Ocean or something. So anyway, there's this constant need to reinforce the fellowship against threat. Like I say, Satan is constantly going to try to threaten our, our fellowship because he knows that if he can disrupt the fellowship, 
then he accomplishes something. Attendance begins to drop off. Because who wants to come to a fellowship or to a worship assembly or to a Bible class where the people are at each other's throat, where they are grumbling and complaining about things, where a hypocrisy exists? You know, who wants to be a part of that? Soul winning drops off. If we can't even get along, why should we reach out to those who are, are lost? Giving and offerings, they dry up. That means mission work dries up. That means the uh, reaching out into the community dries up. Benevolence dries up. Service dries up. A lot of those things come to a screeching halt. New members drop off. New members come. They see the fellowship. They say, don't want to be a part of that. And they all walk on down to the next church or go uh, somewhere else. So you can see the value of why Satan will try to threaten the fellowship or try to disrupt the uh, fellowship itself. So let me talk to you about three ways in which Satan attacks or threatens our fellowship. The first one has to do with external opposition. If he can mount enough opposition externally against us, then that will cause the church to silence itself. It will cause the church to withdraw fellowship. Open your Bibles, if you will, over to Acts chapter 4, if you would, please. Acts chapter 4. Let me set the context for you as you get to 4. In chapter 3, at the beginning of it, John and and Peter, they arrive at the temple, and as they walk into, getting ready to walk into the temple, there's a man who is lying there who are, is begging for alms. He's been a lame man for 40 years. He's lame from his mother's womb, and as Peter and John are walking by, uh, he obviously is begging from them, and Peter looks at the man, and he says, look at us. Well, the man looked at him because he's expecting to get something from them. Uh, he doesn't know exactly what he's going to get. He thinks it's silver or gold, but Peter looks at him, and he says, Silver and gold, we don't have any of that. But what we do have is this. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he takes him by his hand and he lifts him up. And it says the strength came into the man's feet and into his ankles. And he, and he got up and he leaped ab about. Peter and John continuing going into the temple. And this man continues follow, uh, following them, holding on to them, leaping about the people in the temple this guy has been there for a lot of years begging for alms and so they recognize who he is and what they recognize is this guy once was lame and now he is walking in full health the result is it draws a huge crowd around them and peter brings the second recorded sermon that you find in the new testament by peter and so he begins to preach to them the gospel of jesus christ and he says, you people have crucified the prince of peace, but God resurrected him from the grave, and you need to repent so the seasons of refreshing might come into your lives. And he goes on and he preaches a lesson. That disturbs some of the people that are around, particularly the Jewish leaders. Look at chapter 4 now, beginning in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. We're talking about Annas. We're talking about Caiaphas. We're talking about the Sadducees. And remember, the Sadducees, they have a big problem with the resurrection, and they're proclaiming Jesus as resurrected from the grave. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus as resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Church is growing. 
On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. And they placed them in the center and began to inquire, by what power or what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. And then he goes on and says some things about him from Psalm 118. And he says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. These guys are livid. But they don't know what to do about it because it's obvious that a miracle has taken place. And so how do you combat something like that? They noticed that Peter and John, though they were uneducated, I mean, sounded a lot like Jesus who, I mean, he thumped those guys every time they got into a discussion of a spiritual or biblical nature, he just wiped them up. And now these guys sound like Jesus, that they're doing the exact same thing. And so they decide to respond to them and to stop them from what they are doing. So in verse 13 says, As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What are we going to do with these men? For the fact is noteworthy, a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so that they may not spread further among the people, let us threat them. Let us warn them not to speak any longer in, the, in his name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give to heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, because we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now look at verse 21. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. So notice two different times. Number one, he says, we are warning you not to speak any more in the name of Jesus. And he said, well, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? We can't help but speak what we have seen and heard. Just think about all the things that they had saw. All the miracles and signs and wonders that they had saw over three years. Think about their, his teachings, how he spoke as one with the authority. And he spoke to the heart of the people and, you know, and not just to a law that was so boxed in. It was in, in, incredible. Notice in verse 20 it says, and they threatened them some more not to do. So what do these guys do? Well, number one, there's a boldness that is in them. But then get down to verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all to the chief priests and the elders and said to them, when we heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Drop down to verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant to your bondservants that we may speak boldly your word in, con in, in confidence. This is, you know, I don't know, when I look at this and look at the, the narrative that we're being shown here, 
the religious leaders, they're going to, to threaten the church. They're going to tell Peter and John, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Peter and John say, that's not us. We're going to speak. And then they take it to uh, the church. So what did the church do with the threat? What did they do with the threat? They dismissed and went home. They elected a committee to march down to the city hall and appeal for their religious rights. Did they circulate a petition to send to the governor? Well, of course, obviously, they didn't do any of those things. So what did they do? Well, they appealed to a higher power is what they did. They prayed. The question is, is what did they pray for? Did they pray for safety? Did they pray that, you know, the persecution would be lifted? What did they, they pray for? Well, what they prayed for is they prayed for boldness. That's what verse 29 says. They prayed that they would boldly speak out with confidence and that's what that word boldness means it means to speak out without reservation it means to speak openly to speak freely it meant to have to be absent of any kind of fear to speak forth in confidence that's what the church prays for they prayed for boldness to speak the word regardless of the external uh external opposition the highest power in judea was the council, was the Sanhedrin. You didn't get any higher than Annas, who was the recognized chief priest of the Jews, or Kivis, who was his son and recognized by the Romans and propped up by the Romans as the high priest, or the council itself. They wielded a tremendous amount of power when they said, we're warning you, we're threatening you not to speak anymore. They can back it up with some things. But the church says, we're not going to buy into that. Well, today, when you think about your own lives, and when you think about the, the various pressure that is being laid on us, obviously there's no religious leader or leadership group that's telling us or threatening us not to speak about Jesus. The government's not even doing that. At least not yet, anyway. And so what's, what happens here? Well, as our society becomes more immoral, as it becomes more ungodly, as it begins to move away from God and more into being more secular, they're going to apply a lot of pressure on those who do stand for God's standards or for God's way of, of living. Take, for instance, this gal behind me, Candace Cameron Burr. You recall probably, for those of you who are a little bit older, uh, the popular TV series Fuller House. She was a child star there. She went on with her brother to get more involved in movies and in the industry itself. She was a huge player for Hallmark until Hallmark became more woke than she could stand. And so she walked away from woke and she attached herself to the family network. And she became the uh, creative officer, the chief creative officer within the family network. And she came out here a while back and talked about that, that she is going to focus, that this network is going to focus more on traditional marriage. In fact, these were her words. She goes, I'm very excited to develop heartwarming family and faith-filled programming and make the kind of stories my family and I love to watch. I'm constantly looking for ways that I can inspire people to live life with purpose. We're going to make shows, she says, that are according to traditional marriage and family values. Let me tell you what, this is just in the news last week. 
she caught all kinds of things from Marin Morris, who is kind of a country singer, pop crossover type singer. Jody Sweeten was her co-star, littler, smaller girl than her during Fuller House. And then uh, Jojo Siwa, or Siwa. Anyway, Hollywood came out against her. I mean, really out, out, out uh, against her. The members and allies of the Hollywood LGBT community are speaking out uh, after the Fuller House star sparked controversy with the comment about telling stories centered on traditional marriage. What are they trying to do? Well, I mean, what's going on here? Or maybe you recognize these guys. This is back 11, 12 years ago when you know Tim Tebow was the quarterback for the the Broncos so all you Bronco fans do you kind of wish you had him back right now <laughs> maybe not anyway Tebow he caught and he wasn't a great quarterback guy had lots of energy super enthusiastic but Tim Tebow claims to be a Christian and after he'd throw a touchdown or run a touchdown he would oftentimes go to his knee and give a moment of thanks or praise to God. He's not trying to cause an issue. That's just who he is. Okay. Carl Nassib was also an NFL football player. He's the first guy to come out as a gay man in the NFL era. One is booed off the field. The other is overwhelmingly accepted and celebrated as a hero. Which one do you think was which? So what's happening here? What's going on in our society? Well, I can tell you the world is trying to bully and threaten Christianity into silence just as the Sanhedrin tried to bully and threaten the first century church into silence. But what you see is that the church didn't quit. In fact, it says they continue to grow and more believers are being added as they go along. From 5,000, now it's increasingly moving forward and growing. As you get down to verse uh, 14, it says, And many more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were co constantly added to their number. It does, you would think it would stop it, but it doesn't. All it is is through like gas on the fire, and it, and it took off. The church continues to move forward and to grow. And so how did those first century Christians respond to external position? Uh, uh, external opposition, well, they prayed for boldness, encouraged to speak freely with confidence. That's what they were about. And instead of it weakening them, it strengthened them as believers. In other words, they were not going to be the kind of church that the world wanted them to be. They're going to be the kind of church that the world needed them to be. And that's what we need to do today. We need to be strong. We need to be able to stand our ground. I'm not saying we need to be mean or hateful or arrogant or any of those things. We should do it with love and with kindness and with gentleness, but at the same time with boldness and with confidence that we hold the truth. We need to do that. So many denominations are striking their fidelity clauses. They're not striking their fidelity clauses when it comes down to fornication or adultery. That's what's interesting. They're striking their fidelity clauses uh, clause when it comes down to the LGBTQ movement. That's what they're striking out of there. So they look more and more like the world, so the world can easily come to them, you know, with the idea of, in the name of Jesus. And so they're trying to become what the world expects them to be rather than what God expects them to be. Remember I said to you that fellowship is determined by God's terms, not by ours. And so we are demanded, God commands us to hold close to his word. And that's what that first century church did when their external opposition came at them. They became bold and prayed for boldness. If you're wondering why in the world these people died back then, well, that's why. They didn't die because they took the Lord's Supper. 
They didn't die because they came to church and sang songs. That's not why they died. They died because they stood for that which is good, that which is right, and that which is moral, that which is according to what God would have them to do. So Satan attacks the church through external opposition, but when that doesn't work, he just rolls over and gives up, right? No siree. He doesn't. He just comes at you from another direction. The direction he comes at you from is from hypocrisy. In chapter 4, the latter part of chapter 4 of Acts, the, uh, the church was taking care of those who came from all over the world to them. And there, it says that they're selling property and houses, and they're bringing the proceeds, and they're laying them at the apostles' feet to take care of their brethren. Barnabas, who is also known as Joseph, a son of encouragement, it says he sells a field and brings the funds to the, to, uh, the apostles. Good stuff. But then you get down to chapter 5, and there you're introduced to a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Look at chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and his wife's full knowledge and bringing the portion of it, they laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart that you have lied to men, not have, that you have not lied to men, but to God? And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his lies last. And a great fear came over all of those who heard. And the young men, they covered him up and took him out and buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that's, what, that's the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she falls dead as well. Man, that sounds severe, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds, sounds really severe. So what's the, the problem here? I mean, when they owned the land, was it wrong for them to sell the land or the property? No, there's nothing wrong with selling land and property. Was it wrong for them to keep back a portion? Could they, you know, when it was in their control, could they keep back a portion of it? The answer is yes. There's nothing wrong with keeping back a portion of it. So what is it that they did that was, was wrong? I mean, well, what was wrong is that every th everyone thinks, and they're wanting everyone to think, that they'd sold, every, sold it all and gave it all to the Lord. In other words, uh, they wanted to appear as something that they were not. They wanted people to see, here's what we are, but, but Peter says, and he identifies it, that's not what you are. You know what you, you gave. And so they wanted to appear uh, something more than what they, they were. They wanted everyone else to, to think of them as being sacrificial, to being completely sold out to Jesus. They wanted them to see them in that kind of light, but that's not who they were. They were not any of those, those things that they were projecting themselves to being. It was hypocritical. I try to think of another word for what they did that Satan tried to attack this fellowship with. He said, well, you, you don't know. So, listen, when Satan gets into your mind, he says, what has it happened to you that you would allow Satan to so fill your mind that you think you could deceive people, that you could deceive God? Listen, you can deceive man, but you cannot deceive God. And so God, you know, he is one who hates hypocrisy. So what is hypocrisy? It's when a Christian sets out to deceive others into thinking that they are something that they are not. 
Man, you can so, that is such an easy one to follow in. More spiritual than they really are. More holy than they really are. More righteous than they really are. Hypocrisy disrupts a fellowship. It, it really does. Especially one that God expects to be authentic. Okay, so is it wrong to strive to be spiritual? Is it wrong to strive to be holy? Is it wrong to strive to be righteous? We should all strive for that. We should all strive to move there. But not just so we can get the glory from any man or any woman. We strive for holiness and, and godliness and righteousness because God would have us to be so. But when we put on a face to show that we are something that we are not, God has a really big problem with that. You know, I asked the question, well, what was so wrong? I mean, did that sound so bad that they ended up dying because of it? Well, to you and me, we might say, yeah, it's a minor infraction. To God, says, that's a huge one for me. And the church needs to be warned about that. In fact, it says fearful of all of them. And in verse 14, it says the result of that is that they continue to grow all the more. So Satan attacks the church. He attacks it through external opposition. He attacks it through hypocrisy. You know, not being something that you really are. And when those don't work, then he'll attack the church through one of his biggest ones, and that is dissension. He'll try to get us to uh, disturb the fellowship and the peace of the fellowship and the joy of the fellowship. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, the church is growing rapidly. And as a result of growing rapidly, there are needs that are there. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and following. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. That's, that's Jews who have learned the Greek language and have bought into the Greek culture, okay? Well, it says a, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of, of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this text. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement, it found approval, and that's exactly what they, they, they did. So what's the problem? The problem is that some were complaining uh, they're muttering, they're mumbling, they're grumbling that they're, not being, that they're being neglected. Were they being neglected? I don't know. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but Peter and John, they address, or Peter, they, they address it. The apostles, they uh, uh, address it. Listen, do you know what travels faster than the speed of light? The church grapevine. That thing is fast. I mean, you put out a... a uh, a interesting morsel out there and we can spread it through this place so fast you know if someone were to tell you you know that Richard Sutton went out and bought himself a red vet that thing would fly through this place <laughs> Richard bought a red vet you know and it just I mean because it it's kind of a kind of a morsely kind of thing there travels fast well there's a word that I shared with you last week quinonitis remember that one quinonitis was a disease of being exclusive where we exclude people out here's another word for you to think about it's the word gogusmos. You say to yourself, gogusmos. What is gogusmos? Gogusmos is something that you think you'd find on the bottom of your shoe, right? I mean, you ever been out, uh, you ever been to a parking lot on, say, a 
day when it's like 90 to 100 degrees outside and someone has spit a wad of gum out on the pavement and you walk on it and you step on that thing? Let me tell you what, if that happens to you, you are going to be mumbling, you're going to be grumbling, you're going to be muttering under tones. I mean, you're going to be upset about that. And that's what this word gogusmos means. It's a real word. That word, he says, and a complaint arose among the Hellenistic Jews. That word complaint there is that word gogusmos. It's a word that means to grumble, to mutter, to murmur, to complain. That's going to disrupt that fellowship there. When you have people who are muttering about people, when you have people that are murmuring about, when you have people that are complaining, when you have people who are doing it in undertones about the church or about uh, Christians or any of those kinds of things, do you not think that that does not disrupt an effective fellowship? Do you not think that it disrupts our ability to exalt Jesus as we should, to equip the saints as we should? to reach out to those who are lost as we should, when we are find ourselves in the midst of muttering and grumbling and complaining. And listen, it doesn't happen to happen with a big giant group. It can happen with anyone. When that happens, when we step into that stuff, when we get filled with that stuff, it destroys fellowship. What I'm saying to you is that the devil can use anyone to begin gogusmos. He really can. He can use a group of little old ladies, little old men, Little old young people, little old deacons, even the not-so-little, bald-headed, yet handsome preacher. <laughs> That's just positive reinforcement for me, okay? So, so anyway, but it can happen among anyone. Anyone can get involved in this, and when that happens, the progress of the church stops. Which means, where does Gogusmo start? Stop. Gogusmo stops with you. When you start feeling complaining or muttering or grumbling, listen, if you've got some problem with the elders, you ought to just come and talk to these guys. There's like seven of them, or yeah, seven of them, and they're so approachable, and they'll listen to your, if you've got to mutter or grumble, go mutter and grumble to these guys. They've got pretty big shoulders. They'll listen. It's not so, you know, or if you've got a problem with me, you don't have to grumble about me. Listen, I'm not so naive to think that everyone just loves me or loves my preaching. I know that, okay? I'm not naive. I'm, a, I'm kind of realistic about that. But if you have a problem, just talk to me about it. The worst I can do is shoot you. <laughs> Tell God you died or something like that. I don't know. But, but no, just come and talk to me. You know, and, and if I have guilt, then I'll own it. And I'll, you'll give me an opportunity to repent. I don't want to walk in darkness. I want to walk in the light. Okay? And that would go for all of us. And anything that happens in the church, there's a lot of moving parts in a church according to our size, and so it's easy to get caught up in muttering and grumbling, and so let's make sure that we're working with each other. God hates it. I mean, God hates, hates it, discord. Listen to what it says. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Other translation says he detests them. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and look at this, and one who sows discord that has spread strife or stirs up conflict among the brethren. That's scary stuff because when you do that, you're talking about doing that to the Lord's church or to the Lord's bride, and he doesn't take that lightly. In a multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. But a man of understanding holds his peace. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Behold how great a fire is set ablaze by the tongue. 
James says. So what, is, what do Peter and John do when they hear about these Grecian widows who are saying, things are not going fair here? How do they resolve the, the problem? Well, they acted rather than reacted to it. They could have said, you know, these old Grecian ladies, you know, if you don't like the way things are going, go somewhere else. But they didn't do that. They listened to what they had to say, and they said, let's do something uh, about it. And so they appointed seven men to oversee the task of making sure everything is distributed fairly. And that's all a problem is. It's just an unmet need that is there, but you don't know it unless you hear about it. So once again, the result of it is, is that their fellowship is restored. They eliminate the problem, and things are, are good once again. Verse 7 is, is interesting. Verse 7 says that the Lord increased them, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Isn't that incredible? Here are these threats that are coming at the church. Satan attacks us with external opposition. Satan attacks the church with hypocrisy. Satan tries to attack the church with dissension. And as God's people, we overcome those things. In the name of Jesus, we overcome those things. And the result is the church doesn't become weaker, it becomes stronger, and the church grows. So are we going to have attacks? Yes, we're going to have attacks. That's why we need to constantly be those who are reinforcing the fellowship. There's nothing more beautiful or sweeter than fellowship when it's done right. When it's done right, unity and joy are experienced within the church. When it's done right, Jesus is exalted. When it's done right, saints are equipped for works of service so we can meet each other's needs and, and those of our community. It evangelizes the lost. <clears throat> it's incredible when you talk about the beauty of fellowship. Here's the question for you this morning. Are you in fellowship with God? Well, if you're a Christian and you've kind of got maybe you're on a different track, then the way back, of course, is to confess your sins. First John 1 and verse 9 says, confess your sins, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive you of all of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's God's promise to his children. We can always come back, get back on the right track. Or if we're not in fellowship with God in the first place, then we need to get into that fellowship. So how do you get into the fellowship? Well, the same way they did it on the day of Pentecost. He had preached the gospel to them. Those people believed it. They wanted to change, so he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know what? 40, verse 41, 3,000 of them did it. Verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you can see as we have went down to chapter 4, 5, and 6, how the church kept growing and increasing. So if you haven't been added to the fellowship by being baptized in Christ, why not do this today? And why not do it right now? Well, together we stand and sing and give you opportunity to do so.